Thank you, Lewis. As we approach the year 2021 in a week and a half, how do people now refer to 2020? I've, I've heard 2020 referred to as the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad year. I saw one picture that showed 12 porta potties in, in all on fire, blazing away, and the caption was, if 2020 were a scented candle. One man said, the dumbest thing I ever did was to purchase a 2020 calendar. Well, you know, as believers in a sovereign God, our perspective is a little bit different <laughs> from that. Uh, but our calendar is the same, and uh, my calendar says that in December 27th, Betsy and I are to leave to go up to White Sulphur Springs, where we've been 36, 37 years teaching the military and the Officers Christian Fellowship at one of the retreat centers, and uh, we're going to be up there and, and enjoy that fellowship with the military until last week when I got called. And they said that the governor of Pennsylvania had issued new mandates, and there was no wiggle room, uh, even though they were taking all kinds of precautions. But there's just no wiggle room for them to continue with the retreats this year. So uh, it, the winter retreats are canceled, which means that their spring 2020 retreats were canceled, and then their summer retreats were canceled, and then the fall retreats were canceled. The youth retreats, Allegheny Outback, and the other camps and programs were canceled. The West Point retreat, the Annapolis retreat, all those were canceled, and now the winter retreats are canceled, which is pretty hard for a hospitality ministry. You know, you just, you know, their hearts are broken because that, the reason why they exist is to plug into the lives. I mean, they're retired military themselves, to plug into the li lives of uh, those uh, who serve in this way as in career choice. But, you know, that's, that is one ministry we're involved in. You've heard me talk about that. But here we are at Signal Mountain Bible Church, and we look at each other and, and say from time to time, you know, I'm, I'm looking at you, and I can't hug you. <laughs> I can't see your face fully. <laughs> and, and, and those kinds of things that were just a part of our life together, and the question comes up, you know, wh when will this end? Well, it will I am fully convinced of that. But in the meantime, what is it doing to us? There is a heavy price to pay for safety. And I'm, I'm not saying we shouldn't pay that price. So please do not misunderstand what I'm saying. Um, I'm, but I am saying what I think we would all agree is true, that there is a heavy price to pay for COVID precautions. There is a mental pandemic among elderly people who, because of lessened contact, diminished contact, have disengaged from life. And that is a fact across our country. That is a horrible shame. There's a pandemic of people who are anxious, who are depressed, who are fearful, uh, and some of them just trying to get through the week, just one more week, uh, in some cases, the pandemic has brought dads closer to their kids. I think that is a great thing. But for so many people, 
these days have pulled back the curtain and exposed the emptiness and futility of what we thought mattered, of the ways in which we engage our lives, entertainment, uh, in, involvement in other, other kinds of things. And you know what? That could be a good thing because God may be unveiling our need for Jesus Christ. So all the things that we thought were so important have been removed, or many of them have been removed, and having that exposed to us is not a bad thing. I need to remember, as a Christian, what we talked about some weeks ago. And uh, I mentioned it to you then, and it is still very true. When we think that everything has changed, nothing that has changed is eternal, and nothing that is eternal has changed. You repeat that. Nothing that has changed is eternal, and nothing that is eternal has changed. God is still on his throne. He is still our hope, and that remains unchanged. Do you remember what Paul said to the Thessalonian Christians, even when he was talking to them about the worst possible thing, death? He was talking to them about death, and he said, look, we do not grieve as do others who have no, what's the word? Hope. No, hope. We're going to be talking about hope. And then after that, Paul described their hope to the Thessalonian Christians. And their hope was a vaccine. No, 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 wait a minute. That was not the hope. Their hope was Jesus Christ. Last week, Damon brought us into the, into the experience, the joy, the immediacy of the announcement to the shepherds of the birth of Jesus. Hope, hope was born there at Bethlehem. Gabriel said, today in the city of David there has born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Hope. I want to talk about and ponder the topic of hope. And I, at the same time in our study today, I want to reach back into, to, because today we close out our studies in First and Second Peter, I want to reach back into some themes in the last verses of Second Peter and kind of roll up that scroll and, and, and complete that and bring that into our talk about hope because in the new year we're going to be beginning a new series. So uh, uh, the, a couple of the last verses in Second Peter 3, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And then in verse 18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And that's how 2 Peter ends. So the question is, am I looking for Jesus' advent? And he's not talking about the first advent. He's talking about the second coming, the second advent of Jesus. Am I diligent to be found in peace, spotless, blameless, when he comes? That's what Peter's talking about. Am I thinking about the second advent in light of the first advent? Do I, do I want to be spotless? Do I want to be blameless? Do I want to be holy? Do I want to grow in grace? Am I growing in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, or is COVID more real to me than Jesus is? So that, that's where, how Second Peter ends. Where is my hope? How, do the, how, how does the coming of Jesus, the first coming and the second coming, result in hope? 
for you, for me, for the world. How does that happen? We're going to explore that. Because in the first century, before Jesus came, God's people had lost hope. Messiah had not come. He hadn't come when they thought he should and how they thought he should. God, from their perspective, was silent. The last time they'd heard from him was 400 years before. Right now, these Jews who believed the Old Testament remained under the thumb of Rome. And before they were under the thumb of Rome, they were under the thumb of the Greeks. And before under the Greeks, they were under the thumb of the Persians. And before that, the Assyrians. And before that, the Egyptians. And in between, under the thumb of various smaller groups. And, and what it came down to is this. God's people had just lost hope. But even when they didn't see it, even when they didn't feel it, didn't, they didn't know it, God was at work bringing hope into this hopeless world. Galatians 4 tells us when the fullness of time came, that's God's timetable, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And for you and for me, remember what Peter said about the second advent. Remember Peter? We're closing out Peter here. Remember what Peter said. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. Even in a time of little observable hope, whether you live in the first century before Jesus or you live now before Jesus comes again, whether you detect it or not, God is on the move. Into this time of hopelessness, God sent Gabriel to Mary. We read about it last week. He told her this, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. We're going to see David a little bit later on. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. The astonishing thing is, this young teenage girl submitted to the angel's announcement because as far as she knew, her own immediate hope for any normal life, any future, was gone when she said, be it done to me according to your word. That's gone. Her hope was gone for any normal life. As far as she knew, after the baby was born, she could be, according to Jewish law, legally executed. Certainly, at the least, she would face public humiliation. No marriage, no marriage to Joseph. That's Mary. What about Joseph? He, his heart was broken. He thought Mary had betrayed him. She came back from spending three months at the home of a priest. Her cousin, Elizabeth, she came back three months pregnant. And he was just destroyed. He lost hope of his marriage, at least to Mary. But God sent Gabriel to Joseph also and told him, God is at work. Mary is the prophesied virgin who will give birth to Messiah. 
And God gave Joseph hope. It wouldn't be easy. wouldn't be easy for both Joseph and Mary or for their future other children. wouldn't be easy, but it would be worth it. Over the next months, God continued to give Joseph and Mary several confirmations which would help anchor their hope. We already mentioned that Mary had the confirmation with Elizabeth. Joseph had the confirmation from Gabriel. From, uh, 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 Gabriel. And then after Jesus was born, hope came when the shepherds arrived and the angels announced, had announced to them. And then hope came when they were in the temple with Anna and Simeon, and they were encouraged by the hope that they gave them. And then hope came maybe some two years later when the Magi arrived and the gifts were given, which would then in turn finance a trip down to Egypt. You, you kind of get the picture. God is at work. God is giving hope. He has not abandoned them, whether they felt like it at all or, or not. At any given time, he was still there. Why is hope so critical for your spiritual survival and mine? Why is it absolutely essential bedrock stuff for us as believers? The answer drives us deeper into the biblical meaning of hope. The word hope is used differently in the Bible. A few times it's used the way sometimes that we use it. I hope the COVID vaccine will be safe and available to everyone soon and will have 95% effectiveness. I, I hope that. I hope that until then people will chill, be gracious and patient with one another. I hope that. Uh, those things are outside my control. But, you know, crossing my fingers here, I kind of hope it. It's contingent. It doesn't depend upon me. Actually, it doesn't depend upon you. It's just something that we sort of hope. We're optimistic about that. That's what we mean by that. It may happen, it may not. But when the Bible speaks about our hope in Jesus, okay, that vertical hope, that is not uncertain. It's not wishful thinking, and it's based upon faith in God's promises. God's promises are the anchor for that hope. There's a certainty here of something that will but has not yet happened. And yet it most certainly will. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, prepare your minds for actions. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's not the first advent. That's his second coming. Hebrews 6, verse 11, We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have a full assurance of hope in, until the end. So the gospel connects hope with both the first advent and the second advent of Jesus. Do you remember when we were studying Romans 5? I mentioned to you then a, a definition of hope. Uh, hope is a future certainty anchored in a past reality resulting in a present mentality. A future certainty anchored in a past reality resulting in a present mentality. Doesn't fit on a bumper sticker, but it's true. 
Hope is a future certainty. Your eternal destiny and the unfolding of God's plan, it's a future certainty. Anchored in the past reality, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus his, when he, after he died on the cross for our sins, that past reality is anchored in that, that results in a present mentality so that you can live now in confidence, in victory, in peace, or at the very least, in fear not. If you want something that's shorthand, here's a shorthand definition. You ready? It's a great definition. Great definition of hope. Here it is. 1 Timothy 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. There's your definition. What is hope for us? It's Jesus. That's it. 2,000 years ago, hope came to Bethlehem. And for us, living between these first and second advents, right now in 2020 and in 2021, the Bible calls the second coming of Jesus by a certain term. I want to read that to you. Titus 2, verses 11 to 13. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's the first advent. That's in the past. The first coming of Jesus, resulting in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins. So bringing salvation to all people training us to renounce ungodliness and, un and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Do you get that? In this present age, now, after the first advent, until, listen to this, waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory and of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our future hope. Final redemption. This is... This is more than just a doctrine. It's, you know, you, you might hear this and, and think, oh, well, yeah, how nice. Gary. There are a lot of things in the Bible about hope and they seem to tie together. No, no, no. This is much deeper than that. This is more than a doctrinal outline. This is intended by God to be the spiritual air that you breathe, the spiritual food that nourishes and nurtures you, the spiritual drink that will refresh, will refresh your parched spirits and parched emotions. Here's the deal. Biblical hope creates an emotional reservoir that you can draw upon in hopeless times. Biblical hope creates an emotional reservoir that we draw upon in hopeless times. So is that reservoir nourishing you? Is it refreshing you as you inhabit this time between the two comings? A time filled with joys, yes, but also with sorrows and tragedies. Are you drawing on that reservoir of hope? Romans 15 verse 4 says this, Whatever was written in earlier times, was written for our instruction that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So I want for us to look at a case study in the development of hope in the Scriptures so that we might receive encouragement from the Scriptures. Here's the case study. I'm going to ask you to turn...
to the scripture that we just that uh, um, Lewis just read, Micah chapter five. Micah chapter five. Open your Bible to the Psalms and turn right. Easy to find right after Jonah. It's a little Bible joke. Micah chapter 5. Here's what's going on. Um, Micah w- was a contemporary with Isaiah. They, they wrote at the same time, and sometimes they tag-teamed with their uh, prophecies. What, what, what was going on in the context was the Assyrian armies were looking down upon the Jews, both the northern and the southern kingdom. They were looking at them, and, and they were prey. Uh, they were about to prey upon the Jews. The Assyrian armies are, are threatening. And if you look back in chapter 4, uh, Micah describes how God will keep and restore a remnant after that captivity. Look at verse 7 of chapter 4. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcasts a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. So this is future restoration of a remnant in that day, he calls it in verse 6. So there's going to, in that day, some future day, there is going to be the restoration of a remnant. But until then, now, verse 9, now, why do you cry out loudly? Look at verse 10. Writhe and labor to give birth, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth. For now you will go out of the city, dwell in the field, and go to Nineveh. Oh, I'm sorry. Wait a minute. Doesn't say Nineveh. That Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. That's what it should say. Doesn't say that. It says and go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hands of your enemies. So they're going to be brought back, but not from Assyria, not from Nineveh. Actually, this would have sounded bizarre to Micah's audience. It would have sounded very strange because the threat that dominated the ancient Near Eastern world was the Assyrian Empire. So for what Micah just said to come true would mean that Assyria would have to decline. And of all the rival empires waiting in the wings, Babylonia would have to be the one that rises up. And then Babylonia would have to attack Judah, the, the, the kingdom of Judah. And then Babylonia would have to conquer Judah. And 150 years later, that is exactly what happened. Despite the fact that the readers of this would look at this and say, huh? Babylon? But God knows what he's doing. His plan is unfolding on his timetable. Now, meanwhile, meanwhile, God has this to say in verse, chapter 5, verse 2. But as for you, and you expect him to say, oh, my people, or you expect him to say um, Israel, or you expect him to say Judah, or something like that. Or if he's going to name a city, you'd expect him to say Jerusalem. He does it. This would have been just jarring. I mean, you think the other with Babylon was odd. This would have been really puzzling. Of all the, Bethlehem has never been mentioned up to this point in Micah. And it was not that significant. So all of a sudden, this statement by Micah, the Lord through Micah, 
narrows down and focuses of all places on Bethlehem. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity, which means at the very least that the Messiah, who he's talking about here, is pre-existent. At the most, it means he's eternal. But yet, he's going to be coming forth from Bethlehem, just like David did. His goings forth are from old, from the days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will turn to the sons of, will return to the sons of Israel. He will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. And then chapter 5, verse 1 concludes this prophecy. This one will be peace. Some versions add the word our. But have you considered this is actually a name, one of his names? He's, this one will be peace. Isaiah, his contemporary, Isaiah 9, 6, calls him the Prince of Peace. In Luke chapter 2, verse 14, glory to God in the highest on earth, peace. In Ephesians 2, 14, he is our peace. Romans 5, 1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Peace is embodied in Jesus. He is, that is one of the things that he gives us as for, uh, in relationship with him. So, but strangely, this prophecy is directed to Bethlehem. What do we actually know about Bethlehem? What did they know about Bethlehem? Well, both Luke and Micah describe Bethlehem as too little to be among the clans of Judah. But, okay, so what, what does that mean? And why is that significant? I mean, was the choice of Bethlehem random? Uh, did God get a dartboard of the Middle East and just, and oh, okay, Bethlehem, we'll make it Bethlehem. If there were a competition among all the cities of the world for where the Savior could be born, if all the cities could talk and make their case, hey, have him be born here. Would Bethlehem be in the running of that competition? What case would Bethlehem make? I mean, Jerusalem could make a pretty good case. That's where the Magi went because they expected to find the one who was born king of the Jews in the capital, Jerusalem. Why not Bethany? There's some good people who lived in Bethany. I mean, what's the obvious choice besides Jerusalem? Nazareth. Why not Nazareth? That's where Mary and Joseph were both from. That's where Jesus eventually spent most of his growing up years. Why not Bethsaida? Why not Jericho? And you can say, well, the reason why it had to be Bethlehem for Jesus is because it was to fulfill the prophecy of Micah. But that's putting the cart before the horse. Right? Why didn't God have Micah prophesy about Nazareth instead? It could have been easy, you know. But as for you, Nazareth, among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth and so forth. I mean, Nazareth, Bethlehem, both three syllables, it could work. 
Or you could say, well, no, no. The reason for Bethlehem is that it demonstrates indisputably that Jesus was of the Davidic line. So not only is his genealogy back to David, but he was actually born where David was born. But you know what? That's not necessary to fulfill the prophecy. It didn't have to be Bethlehem for him to be of the line of David. So that doesn't work. I've got it. The reason why is that Bethlehem is a sweet, nurturing town. It's, it's a precious moments town. Well, no. I would suggest to you that if Bethlehem could, make, uh, could talk and make the case for the Savior to be born there, it would be a very thin case. In fact, in Scripture, the reputation of Bethlehem is far closer to that of Sodom than it is to Bethsaida or Nazareth. I would suggest to you that Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, more than just a random fulfillment of a prophecy, is also a picture of redemption and hope in every way. When you think of Bethlehem, I know we tend to think of Bethlehem as old little town of. We think of a cozy, cuddly village with beautiful stars overhead, soft glowing lights, 60 watt, soft white, with warm, kind people and friendly, polite animals. Actually, the reputation that Bethlehem had may have been the reason why few people wanted to live there. And when you think of that inn as being full, maybe it wasn't because everybody was snuggled up and cuddled up and, and all buttoned up and snoozing away. It may have been because they were rowdy people getting drunk. I think we tend to assume a lot from Christmas card theology. So, what do we know about Bethlehem? Three of the first five references in the Old Testament to Bethlehem connect it with death and burial. After those five references, the next nine references to Bethlehem are in the book of Judges. Now, a little bit about Judges. It's a book that shows the decline and depravity of a culture on display. And at the end of the book of Judges, there are two stories, two stories at the end of Judges that show this is just how depraved a culture can get. And in these two stories, every one of the Ten Commandments is broken. In these two stories, every one of the Ten Commandments is broken. In both stories, the characters who ignite the events that explode into rape, kidnapping, assassination, warfare, all of it, the people who lit the match were Bethlehemites. The priest for sale, the wayward concubine. And here is how the book of Judges ends. Here's how the second of those stories completes the book. Listen, last verse in the book of Judges. In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's a cultural description of decadence. What's true for me? It's a cultural description 
that could describe us today. So that's at the end of Judges. Very next book is another Bethlehem story. Bethlehem is mentioned seven times in the next book. In fact, some Jewish scholars call these three stories the Bethlehem Trilogy. The next book begins this way. In the days when the judges ruled, a certain man of Bethlehem. And from that point on, a very bleak picture is painted of hopelessness in Bethlehem for four people, Elimelech, Malon, Kilion, and Naomi. They leave Bethlehem during a period of famine for Moab so that they can stay alive. But in Moab, Elimelech, Malon, and Kilion, three of the four, died. So that didn't work out that well for them. Only Naomi survived. With her two daughters-in-law, both pagan women who had married, uh, whom their sons had married in Moab, Naomi decided to return to Bethlehem. She was full of bitterness, Naomi, or her name means pleasant, uh, and she said, no longer call me pleasant, call me Mara, bitter. Naomi had no hope, even though Ruth was with her to help her. In fact, Ruth believed in Naomi's God, the God who adopts the broken into God's eternal family. So they arrive at Bethlehem. Bethlehem is still an awful place. It's filled with gossip, hate, resentment, and rape. Boaz, who was a businessman who followed God's word, had to warn his own, his own workers not to abuse Ruth, not to assault her. And he, he did it twice, had to do it twice. But God put redemption on display when Boaz embraced the role that pictures Jesus, the role of a kinsman redeemer, and he married Ruth. Boaz, his mother had been a harlot, right? Rahab. Boaz knew about God's redemption. Boaz knew about hope. And Bethlehem then became a story of God's grace and love. Have you ever seen a precious jewel on display at a jeweler's store? What do they, how do they display that? Do they just toss that on the, cap, on the, on the uh, countertop? No. They want you to see this jewel in all of its beauty. So what they do is they put on a, usually a black velvet background to display that gem. And they put it in front of you and you can see its beauty. You can see how lovely it is, how significant and important it is in contrast to the background of darkness against which it is set. And that is really the story of Ruth during the time of the hopelessness of the period of the judges. Now, what is the significance of that story of Ruth long term? Here's where I want you to make sure that you see how the puzzle pieces of redemption across the centuries start to fit together and lock together to make the same picture. This story of love and redemption ends with the genealogy at the end of Ruth connecting her as the ancestress of David, okay, in the line of Joseph and Mary 
in the line of her descendant, Jesus. Here are the last verses of the book of Ruth. Listen up. These are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, to Hezron born Ram, to Ram Amenadab, to Amenadab was born Nashon, to Nashon Salmon, to Salmon was born, here we go, Boaz, to Boaz Obed, to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, David. The last word of the book of Ruth is the word David. The last word of the Bethlehem trilogy is the word David. And Bethlehem became known not as Sodom, but as the city of David. Luke 2.4, Joseph also went from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. I hope you see how those words that we read so quickly in Luke chapter 2 are just packed with hope from God's eternal plan. It's ironic that three decades later, after Jesus begins his ministry, there's a debate that the people are having about Jesus. Could he be the Messiah? Could he not? Before positions have solidified for or against Jesus, and John 7 gives us an eavesdropping overview of a conversation. Listen, one man is saying to another, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Because they don't know that Jesus is from there. They don't know that Jesus was born there. They don't know that Jesus had his lineage from David. So they're saying, well, he couldn't be because he's a Nazarene. Little did they know. But you know what? They were right. They were right. Indeed, he is from ultimately from Bethlehem, the village where David was. So hope comes to Bethlehem where Jesus is born, a city of despair, a city of idolatry, of degradation, of abuse of women, where all the commandments are broken, all the commandments. This one came who said, I have come to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. I'm going to fulfill it all. And he did. And as you listen to just one aspect of the unfolding plan of God, this, this is just that case study. Remember I, I told you a while ago, we're going to look at one case study. This is it. Micah, it's, it, you know, significance in Bethlehem and the story as it gives, anticipates from the first advent to the second. Romans 15 verse 4 says, Whatever was written in the earlier times was written for our instruction that through perseverance, perseverance means struggle in times that are hard. Perseverance and encouragement from where? Of the scriptures. We might have hope. We might have hope. In the history of Ruth, the prophecy of Micah, they tell the same story, the unfolding perfect plan of God. And I am sure that at times, after Jesus was born, Mary was wondering, okay, so what's next? <laughs> what, how does this play out? <laughs> how does this unfold? How do I interpret the circumstances of my life? I mean, early on, God sent hope, right? And he sent Jesus. But three decades later, th three decades later, then Jesus begins his ministry. And she begins to see the escalating intensity 
of resistance and attacks on her firstborn son. Against Jesus, against his teaching, and then he's arrested, he's tried, he's sentenced to death, and Mary is, I'm sure, thinking, what is God doing? The virgin conception was for this? But, as we read the scriptures, the tomb was empty. Romans 4.25, He who was delivered over because of our transgressions, our sins, was raised because of our justification, our salvation, our hope. And then, guess who was standing right there in the upper room? Mary. And on Pentecost, she saw the beginnings of the formation of the bride for her son, the Son of God. Hope was born. Hope was born again. Have you ever wondered if Mary thought of the church the way Naomi thought of Ruth, her precious daughter-in-law? Is the church Mary's daughter-in-law? I will promise you there were some very special thoughts and love in this woman's heart for the unfolding plan of God. And now she's a part of that bride, the bride of Christ. She called the one who is to be born, before he was ever born, God my Savior. He was her son, but he was her Savior. As has been said before, she was holding him, but he was holding her. In him, all things hold together. So here we are, Sunday before Christmas. We've finished a series in 1 Peter and in 2 Peter. 1 Peter exhorts us, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's described as to be brought to you, which is uh, literally being brought to you. One, One scholar puts it, nails it actually, the grace which is even now bearing down upon you. So, Ever since the first advent, God's grace has been bearing down on you until the second advent towards the revelation of Jesus Christ, which is when he returns. That is our hope. That is our blessed hope. That's 1 Peter. 2 Peter ends this way. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, look for what thing? The second advent. Be diligent to be found by him when he returns. In peace, spotless, and blameless. A couple of verses later, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. This is a reference to the false teachers which we studied a few weeks ago. But, here's the contrast, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity Amen. And Second Peter is ended, and we wrap up the scroll. However, we continue to study it, to be reminded, as Peter says, I want to remind you, I want to remind you, keep these truths before you. Where do you find those truths? In the Scriptures. John says, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, the second advent, we shall be like him, 
because we shall see him just as he is. Listen up, listen up. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. And because of God's grace, your hope no longer rests on anything from this world. Your hope is not in a vaccine. I hope it works. My fingers are crossed. Your hope is not in a political party. Your hope is not in a 401k. Your hope is not even even on people whom you love. That's not where our hope is. Your hope is in Jesus Christ. And his Christmas gift was the gift of himself. He gave himself for you. And if you are listening to this today, if you're sitting here and you have not yet placed your faith in Jesus Christ, or if you are listening in live stream and you have not yet become a Christian, I, I am so glad that you are listening in or that you're here. I am thrilled so that you can hear what the Bible has to say about our hope, which is a certainty. The reason for Jesus' birth, the reason why the Son of God became the Son of Man, was so that he could die as man in our place, so that he could take our sins upon him and pay that penalty on the cross. And here's God's Christmas gift. For God so loved the world that he gave, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Paul puts it this way, and he's also describing a gift. The wages of sin, what is earned, wages are what we earn, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift, not what we earn, but the free gift of God, is, a, is eternal life in Jesus Christ. How do you receive that free gift? How do you pay for it? You don't. Jesus did. We don't earn it. You never could. By grace, you are saved through faith, believing in him, receiving him. By grace, you're saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's a what? A gift of God. Not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. How do you receive that gift? By believing in him. You receive a gift with empty hands. We don't bring anything to him other than our sins from which we need forgiveness. And he already paid the penalty for those sins. And he gives us the gift of eternal life. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to reflect upon your grace and what you have done. I thank you, Father, for the gift of Jesus. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who has not placed their faith in him, that they would take time to think about what they've invested their lives in that they would take time to reflect upon what it means for Jesus to have come, the first coming, and to anticipate what it would mean when he shows up again, and that we want to be found in him. Lord, I pray, I pray that you would enfold us in your arms of love and grace and peace and help us to be your faithful servants until we see him face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.